it is to connect with somebody who's really from the same lineage as and from the same generation as Al Hurt, Doc Severinsen, and all the great trumpet players of that time. Uh, my guest has been involved with a lot of experimental music, but was also in the studio making great records with Jerry Butler and Curtis Mayfield, Ron Steele, and uh, decorated career. Still at it. Bobby Lewis, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Well, thanks for asking me, Jake. It's always a pleasure to talk to wonderful folks like yourself who are constantly promoting jazz. You know, we need all the help we can get, for sure. <laughs> why Why is but, jazz... Uh, let me ask you a question. You Bobby, let me ask... Bobby, let me ask no you a question. Bobby, let me ask you a question. Why has jazz always been underpromoted? Um, you know, I, I don't know about that. I always say that country music um, is about 80% of the music in, this, uh, in the United States. Wow. Wow. You know, um, years ago, people would say, oh, jazz is coming back. I said, well, maybe, but uh, to how many people? Right. You know, a very small percentage of people. And one of the uh, main problems is, is the radio programs or radio stations that present jazz. You know, we have one in Chicago here, WDCB. It's a... Um, a uh, run by the College of DuPage, and they play jazz all day long, all night long. And you know, there's no places like that. You know. You know what I'm saying though. Going back to your earliest days, it's always been an underappreciated form. It's been arguably our greatest art form. You know, Jimmy Heath told me he's like, you know, if it's such great music, you know, and you know, Jimmy Carter sending us on State Department tours all over the world to play this great music. We come home and we're just, you know, we're treated like crap. And, you know, I, I guess more to the point, like Oscar Peterson could play the London House uh, or, you know. I heard, I heard him there a couple of times <laughs> at the Oscar Peterson at the London House. Right. You know, and I just want you to talk about how beautiful that time was in terms of not just that jazz was a popular music, but that I believe the patronage. I don't know, man. Like, they were having steak dinners and stuff, but I'd like to think people were still dancing to that music, too. Well, yeah. I came to Chicago in 1961, Jake, you know. Yeah. Um, that's before rock and roll. And in Chicago, there were countless number of jazz clubs and radio stations that would play jazz. And, you know, a lot more people, I think, knew about jazz then. And when rock and roll came in, I mean, maybe 60% of these jazz clubs went under. Right. Just because of rock and roll and what the, what the people wanted, what the popular music was and what everybody... I uh, started at Andy's Jazz Club on Fridays at 5 o'clock in 1978. Right. Man, it was big rush to start with. And then when, you know... Later on, there was just some rock clubs opened, and they all cut off the jazz club, you know. And I said, what the hell, you know. They loved it here before, but what changed that, you know. But it's, it's when I was here in Chicago in the 60s, it was just magnificent. The recording, became a studio recording musician, you know, 
and uh, proceeded to do 8,000 sessions, you know, TV, radio commercials, and so on and so forth. But No, this is so great because no, this is really important because <clears throat> I want to focus like a laser on this. Like I recognize that you... <clears throat> That you made, sang for your supper in the studios doing jingles and studio dates and that's especially early on. But I want to know, for you, were you trying to, I mean, it would have been a daunting task to try to emulate your peers of, <coughs> you know, uh, Carmel Jones and, uh, you know, Lee Morgan and Freddie Hubbard. I mean, did you, was... Were you in a Dixieland bag in a live setting, or were you going to the to the to the to this to the Bop Cool sessions? Well, I'll tell you what it was a it was a progression. Yeah, I started out playing you know tunes and dances and stuff when I was a kid and blah blah all that kind of stuff, and then uh, proceeded to play big band stuff when I was in college and you know more jazz clubs and. And it was, um, I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison in, in the uh, 50s. And there was a big uh, Dixieland kind of drag uh, movement there. Really? You know, really? We were playing wow. all that stuff, you know? Wow. Jack T. Garden used to come in, the Dukes of Dixieland, those, you know, and we'd sit in with them and play with them and all that stuff. Wait a minute. You need to stop. I need you to tell me about Jack T. Garden. This is legendary. I played with Jack. I know, no, I mean, what What was, because, you know, I did a, for a hot minute, I was hired to do some interviews for a Stan Getz documentary that sadly I don't think we'll ever see the light of day, and yeah. Stan started, now Stan was well underway in his career in the 50s, but you got to Tea Garden, what was that cat all about? Because Stan, Stan, for better or for worse, was on the road with that cat at 16, 200, 340 days a year. Yeah, yeah. Well, we didn't work that much. I didn't work that much. And we he had weeks off sometimes. Sure, you know, but I mean, like you played with him. You know, that's legendary. But uh, for a year, yeah, and then it, and then it kind of worked out real thin in the summer of '64. Uh, you know, or '63 it was, and and you know I could not afford to not get paid for five weeks. You know, right? And so I, I had to do something. So I just decided to settle in Chicago, you know. Did you, and, did you, you, you yeah. You kind of earn a reputation with guys and they finally know what you can do and you get gigs and that's how that whole thing transpires, you know. And then you build a reputation for yourself and then the phone rings. <laughs> you, with Tea Garden, uh, could, when you left the head of the tune, could you take as many bars as you wanted? Did you guys really stretch out a lot? Um, no, not really. It was, um, they played pretty much the same form, same tunes. Those guys played the same choruses every night. Right. You know, I couldn't even remember what I did last <laughs> night, you know. <laughs> I didn't even wanted to, you know. But, <laughs> but anyway, I didn't oh. fall in that mode, but it was pretty predictable. Before I went with Jack, I heard the band with Don Goldie on it. In fact, at the London House. Wow. Two, two nights in a row, and they play the same tune at the same time, the same choruses, both nights. 
I thought, haven't I been here before? You know? <laughs> <laughs> but I guess this is what I'm going to be up with, you know. But, uh, so tell me, the, what was the first really, like, unpredictable, improvisational group you got with when you moved to Chicago? I don't care if you were playing for the door or no money at all. Like, what was that well, band? The, the thing about it is once you started to do studio recording music, you know, or establish yourself as a player in that uh, field, um, it became easier to live, you know. A lot of times we played big band gigs for like six bucks. Right. You know, or, or ten bucks. A good night was twelve bucks, you know. But um, That's awesome. But that's what... That's what what our fun was, you know, we didn't need to depend on jazz to, you know, pay the rent, you know, so we could have the fun with jazz and create and do all that kind of stuff. And, um, well, that's how several our groups uh, started with, with that, you know, because when I interviewed Ahmad Jamal, he said that, um, the first four cats to, were you ever affiliated with Chess Records? Sure, I played a lot of their sessions. Do you, can you? I know when you can you talk about how you connected with Chess, and then ultimately were you? I mean, some of those were well, you on some of the early R and B sessions they put out? No, not the early ones. I did. I was. Um, it wasn't until. 64, 65, 60, the later 60s that I started doing a lot of record dates, you know, Curtis Mayfield and all that, that R&B big movement that they had here, Donny Hathaway, you know, all these great uh, artists like that we had a chance to record with, you know. But it was being called by these studios or these producers, it's like I said, you establish a reputation and, you know, the, you get people talk about, yeah, get this guy, you know, and so on. That's how I got a lot of those calls. I told people I never called one producer once for work. What was the name of the, there was Radio Registry in New York. What was the name of it in Chicago? I'm not familiar with that. Term. Well, no, I mean, you were you would get calls from a service to say, hey, these are the gigs. Oh, that- no. No, no, no. It was just word got around. That's the way it was. There was nothing, nothing like that, you know. It's people knew about you. <laughs> right, but I mean, like, a, like you, you would get your assignments the night before. I mean, I've talked to all the studio cats, and you know, if you, you know, Suds and Duds commercial, they need you at two o'clock here. Like, would you get your? You'd have your whole week laid out, or would you get it, like, when would you get well, your... Well, sometimes the calls were that, you know, even, or sometimes the calls were even, can you make it down here in an hour, you know, calls like that, but... Uh, well, can you, can you, can you share a time? Generally, yeah. Generally, it was planned out ahead, uh, several days, or, you know, so on. Can you talk about an early seminal session when you still really weren't established, you got the call... And it was that sort of um, gateway into... How did you get into chess? Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure how that all happened or who the producers were. That was so long ago that I, I don't recall that. But um, I, I did a lot with um, 
do you know um, the American breed, who they were, the Ben Me, Shape Me? I can't yeah. believe you just dropped that name. They, I mean, those cats, yeah, absolutely, sir. Go ahead. They were such a great group, and I was on all their records. <laughs> there was one time where I said, can somebody put a real high ending on this tune, you know, and there's three trumpet players, and <laughs> the other two declined. I said, I'll do it. And it was it's it goes way up in the Maynard's range almost. I don't, how, <laughs> I don't know how that transpired, but they said, "Oh, that was such a great hit," you know, because of you. <laughs> that is, I just want to read you this uh, this quote from um, an interview I did with a drummer for Chicago, Ross Salamone. He said, uh, "He said Danny Serafin and I went to high school together and grew up in the same neighborhood. In high school, my band used to play the Saka." Jim Gersio played bass in the band, and Larry Lynn played guitar. There were four yeah. drummers in that one neighborhood. Bobby Rafino, who played in a group called The Mob, and then Jim... I who played with The Mob. No, I, I'm, we're going to get... I'm, I want the whole story, but then he says Jim... Yeah, yeah. Jim, Jim Michalak, Michalak, who was the original drummer in the American Breed. Last name was M I C H A L A K Michalak or Michalak. Anyway, he must have been before they recorded because he wasn't on these. I want to know with the mob, for instance, like where was how did where was that recording studio? And like they loved your high hits, even though you were like, I have no idea what I'm playing. Uh, I don't know. Um, Piano player I worked with on forever, you know, Jim Ryan played with the mob. Wow. Yeah. He, wow. he had some pretty wild uh, stories to tell about it, but I, I, I don't remember them, but uh, he said it was a pretty far out group. <laughs> that is, I mean, what, in your memory of them, what made them such a great band? I mean, I'm fascinated because they cert were, certainly weren't playing. Uh, uh, you know, odd times music, or you know, they were. It was kind of was it R and B and go the ahead. American Breed. You yeah, know, are you talking about the American yeah the American Breed? Yeah. I'll tell you why I liked them so much. Their time was impeccable. Wow. The way they the way they swung their they swung their ass off that group, you know, and you get that kind of time and feel going, man. Oh, and it's it was a great feeling group, and the way they recorded it. In fact, Bruce Wedeen was an engineer. Bruce Wedeen became Quincy Jones' top engineer in L.A. Really, know, recorded all Michael Jackson stuff. Bruce Wedeen was the engineer uh, on that, and and um, <laughs> it. Um, let's see, I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> but oh, oh. And, and the uh, way we recorded it was not through headphones. They had the speakers with American Breed playing right at us. I love, dude. I cannot believe and you just said that. we recorded right here and them live without headphones on. And that's why all that music sounds so good, too. I can... So you're telling me when you, when you recorded... They were playing the rip, basically the basic tracks and blasting them through PAs to you. Yeah, right. They had recorded their tracks. That was a certain kind of recording style that was not in the mainstream, but in highly effective. I can't believe that was probably the only time that happened, though, right? 
It was the only time we ever recorded like that. That's incredible. That's and you've been on how many recording sessions? <laughs> it's on seventy five hundred, and you, that's the only time. Well, yeah, eight thousand. Oh, that. that was a nineteen nineties figure at seventy five hundred. So I figured I have. Oh my god. Maybe a few hundred more, but anyway. Uh, no, that's great. Yeah, it, it was. I'm telling you, Jake. We were playing sometimes five, six sessions a day. You know. Could, could be 30 or 40 in a month. I mean, you were absolutely, you were cleaning up, dude. It's unbelievable. So what, tell me about how, how you, uh, when you when you first started to connect with Ron Steele. Well, Ron was um, one of the early guitar players in the recording studios. He was one of the top guys, too. Sure. You know, he, and everybody called Ron Steele and Pat Ferrari and, and say, you know some of the guitarists that could do it all. Pat Ferrari, yeah. dude, I got. Is that cat still around? Pardon me. Is Pat Ferrari still around? He and his wife. I I haven't haven't heard that he passed. We're in um, assisted living. You know, one of those uh, sure retirement. Sure. Homes. I should say retirement. Homes. Sure, sure, sure. No, I just you know he could do it all. He was like a. Tommy Tedesco, cat. Ron Steele was like that too, man. Both of them, yeah. yeah. Both of them were out all, all the time. I'd see Ron, you know, and of course you become friends. Of, hi, hi, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Hi, see you later, man. You know, yeah, man. Good to see you again, Baba. You know, <laughs> but uh, not really knowing each other all that well, except musically, you know. Well, and but, that actually is more important than anything else, I think. Yeah, well, it was uh, seeing the same guys all the time, and and these are the guys that could, you know, read the music down that just got in front of them and uh, play it once or twice and record it, and you're out of here, you know. And that's the kind of musicians that were studio musicians, you know. <sighs> I was able to do the same thing. You know? So I want to I want to know because this is like the wrecking crew of Chicago. Um, who yeah, I guess you could call it that. Well, I know. mean, it was like the same. You're talking like early mid '60s. Yeah, it was. It was the transition period. Um, you found yourself being able to cross over a lot of the the uh, guys that came in. Um, you know, the original Wrecking Crew guys could play jazz, but they hated rock music, so they were kind of like. Um, obsolete almost and uh at least in LA and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you were successful at fitting into because when you started in Chicago everything was pretty much acoustic nothing had plugged in yet and then right. and then by you know 64 65 they the American breed era like it was beginning but you played a lot of acoustic music so how did you adjust from that to rock music well, um, I always could play different kinds of music. I didn't, you know, I could play polkas, I could play, I, I could play avant-garde even. Wow. You know, I, wow. I was that, that uh, maneuverable. <laughs> malleable, yeah, malleable. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. About the invention or creativity, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to have that kind of uh, makeup. With, with what I do, you know. Sure. So one thing was, in the, it's 1961 when I came here, you know, 
Uh, I always say that, you know, a lot of these guys were used to playing big band stuff and like that, but I understood rock and music. I always like to say it, it went from da-da-da to da-da-da. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dude, that's going to be, that's good. That's good. Yeah. yeah. They, they, they just moved the wrong note and, and the short note around, you know. <laughs> so who else was in the... Who, yeah, go, uh, yeah, please, t tell me about that, yeah. The other thing, Jake, is that uh, I got here, Johnny Howe, Warren Kemp, some of those great guys were playing flugel horns, Art Hoyle, and I got into playing the flugel horn. I had played it. <laughs> this is that. so epic, dude. But playing the flugel horn was really... My forte, you know, I don't pray shit out of that because of the sound of it, you know. Oh my I, God, it's, I, it's incredible. The sound of the horn, you know. So that part of it was part of it too. Let me ask you, who was, so Ferrari, Steele, yourself, who were the first call studio cats at that time? Like the rhythm, who were the bass players or the, I mean, because. I've interviewed. Well, Jim Atlas yeah. was one of them. Johnny Frigo was one who played a lot of that stuff. Wow. Who, Johnny Frieger? Pardon me? What was his last name? Johnny what? Uh, Johnny Frigo. Frigo. Because Jim Atlas was a sick bass player. I know that. Yeah, Jim Atlas did a lot of stuff. And let's see, Mel uh, Schmidt was one of the players, one of the early players. Um, I can't recall. Who was the horn section? Pardon me? Who was in the horn section besides you? Well, Johnny Howe, Warren Kime, Rudy Stauber was was a, one of the main players, and uh, Joe Burnett was here. Wow. And, and um, then some of the younger guys started to come in. I was one of them, and... and um, Dick Judson was another one that played some of that stuff. And, uh, you know, the, one of the reasons was uh, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra here. Bud Herseth was a uh, principal trumpet player. Hmm. I loved his playing. He was wow. a super player. He was in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra for 54 years as a principal trumpet player. And he was another reason why I stayed in Chicago, because, wow, getting a chance to play with him in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra was, <laughs> wow, you know, wow. one of those big moments, you know. And Johnny Howe was another one. He played with Woody Herman's band and Charlie Barnett's band. He was he was in a trumpet section with uh, Maynard Ferguson and Al Persino. Doc Sevenson was even in there, you know, yeah. in those, in, in, in that section. So he was another mentor of mine that was uh, one of the reasons I stayed in Chicago, you know. Can you talk about what a mentor means to you? I just, part of my show is about leadership. So how was it, they weren't... Um, you already had the rudiments, but how were they, were they mentors just because they, they made themselves maybe... They they put themselves out there every night and made themselves vulnerable? Well, with both of those guys, all you had to do was sit next to them or sit aside of them and listen to them play. Right. And that was your lesson. <laughs> if, you paid, if you paid attention. Right, right, you know? right, right. And if you did, well, that, oh, that's how it's supposed to go, you know. 
And I told Johnny Howard, too, I said, man, you go anywhere you want to with the lead trumpet part. I'll be right on your tail. <laughs> you know, I'll say I'll be the best second trumpet player you ever, ever had, man. You know, that's the way we do it. You know, and, and those guys like my attitude, you know, the way I played and stuff like that. And, and um, you know, the fun part of it. Having an enjoyment out of it. Yeah, they're having a ball, man. It's. I mean, what the hell can you say? No, I just I love your attitude, man. I love it. I love living, you know? <laughs> you know, um, were you somebody that... I mean, I know you were in the studios and tired and, you know, you know, raising a family, but, I mean, would, were you into going to the Plug Nickel to see Miles and Freddie and those cats? I did. I saw that uh, plug nickel session, and you and did I, right. I knew you. I knew you were going to say that, dude. You saw the epic session. I was there twice. Oh my God! I can't believe this, dude. Well, you know what, Jake? It was funny that uh, that I had heard Miles before, you know, and and that particular um, engagement, I thought. Miles is playing strange. Kind of strange. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. No, it was, it was. I'm not sure. I'm. I'm hearing what I'm hearing. Right. Despite what I'm hearing, you know. And I went back there another night to uh, one of what I had heard before it was not so, but the same thing kind of happened. I thought. I, maybe I didn't understand Miles at the time. I don't know. I think it's but. profound. Of course you did. Who would have, even you being a head musician, you were like hearing that, that was new music, not new music, but it was the the way the, this form, it was new song form, really. Well, that's possibly true, because I heard Art Farmer and all those guys at the Jazz Showcase. Right. I've been telling you, Clark Terry, holy smokes, those guys were something. And, you know, and really enjoying that. And I thought, now, why didn't I enjoy Miles that way? I should have. Probably. Well, I mean, I, you know, and, and it's funny because, uh, I mean, for people, basically what was happening at those sessions, correct me if I'm wrong, is that essentially they, it was one of the first times, if not the first time, that a band would play the play through the tune, play the head of the tune, and then and then they'd, they'd go out, and you'd actually, people, you'd, you might not even know what tune it was, but then they'd, they'd go out for 20 minutes and then come back in all collectively together. Well, so that certainly, you know, can happen if you don't understand what they're trying to do, you know. But you just and weren't into the sound either. Yeah, that way. right. You just really, you weren't digging it. You did, you did not, you weren't like... Uh, I'm always wondering, like, you played in so much experimental musical settings, like Woody Shaw, uh, Kenny Durham. Or, did you cross paths with these cats, or was, like, the bop scene not really your scene? Well, I'm not quite sure um, I understood the way guys played bop. Now, I, I don't see... I get it. No, I want you to go, do a riff on this, yeah. The way they played Right. Not that they played it, you know. I mean, when I heard Clifford Brown for the first few times, I had to concentrate or re-listen to it to make sure I, 
you know, understood what he was doing because Clifford Brown was the ultimate as far as I was concerned about... Absolutely. As, as trumpet playing, if you analyze Clifford Brown's stuff, you, you, got, you got your lesson right there. Right. So how to play at, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's hard to put yourself in somebody else's mind about about playing that way, you know. I mean, everybody plays the way they play, you know. And um, I, I guess I like these guys, but didn't really or couldn't play like them, you know. Sure. No, I really respect the way you articulated that. You know. Uh, uh, it was definitely um, more of a, well, it was just their own way of playing. Did you? Well, I, I, yeah. I respect the way they play and the way they think, you know, and all that. And everybody's different. Everybody's no, it's all about respect. Yeah, respect is it. music and plays music the way they feel it. And, you know, you can't feel the same way that somebody else feels. That's right. About that. So... You, you establish yourself as the way you are, you know, and who you are. I mean, one of my earliest influences was Bobby Hackett and his beautiful playing, you wow. know. I mean, Bobby Hackett was loved by all players. <laughs> Somebody asked Miles once if he listened to Bix, Bix Spiderback. Yeah. Miles says, no, nah, man, I don't listen to Bix. I listened to Bobby Hackett. Holy cow, man. Are you kidding me? Uh, let me finish it. Yeah. He said, I listened to Bobby Hackett. He listened to Bix. <laughs> Whoa. Isn't that a compliment? Whoa. Whoa, yeah. dude. Wait, he played. He played all of Wait, that's a se- you heard that secondhand? You didn't hear that in, in the with from Miles himself, did you? I don't know where that came from, wow. but uh, Bobby Hackett, man, could I mean? So was there? Uh, would you say like in those early, not specific sessions, but just early on, when would you would the would you guys hit as at the same time as the whole band? Obviously, through the years, overdubbing has just become uh, everything, and it, it, you know, for better in my, my mind for worse, but, um, you know, I just got photos of, you know, Lalo Schifrin dates from LA, you know, there's 40 pieces there, you you know, like, can you talk about the magic of how er the early on, a lot of those sessions, everybody did hit at the same time. And most times it was a first take. Well, a lot of those things were like that overdubbing and stuff. Um, I have 14 CDs out of, of my own stuff, and there's none are overdubbed wow. on that. Wow. None, none of it. It's, it's all playing, and, and uh, you know, there's 133 tracks, and, and they're all... In fact, I'm going to send you a whole bunch of them if you'd like. Please, yeah. Because cause there's a wealth of, of great playing there, you know. I'm not talking about myself, but the musicians and the music itself, you know. There's a lot of, lot of just great music there. And um, no overdubbing. No. You, not, not can later, you talk about, can you just talk to the audience about the magic, the magic of hitting at the same time collectively, what that does for the, the pulse and the groove of the music, no matter what kind of music it is? Well, 
it's the feel you get of um, hearing and and um, the vibes you get of a rhythm section right around you. You you feel the drums. You hear the drums. You feel the drums. The bass the same, and the piano and what they're playing like. You know, and you get a rhythm section that's really cooking and playing yeah. and stuff. And you're skating on top of that, man. I'm telling you, there's nothing that feels like that. You know, <laughs> and it's it's just um, an incredible feeling you get from the vibes of playing live instead of with, uh, you know, um, like the recording sessions and Dover dubbing and stuff. I mean, it's a it's a job, kind of. You know, you're having fun, but I mean, come on, dude. It, yeah. More of a job yeah. Than, you know, the enlightenment you get out of playing with each other. The technology has afforded us to spend much more time obsessing over small little things. You guys didn't really have the time to do it. You wanted to get to that feeling, and after that, it was on to the next session. Yeah, well, basically, my latest um, uh, CD that I recorded for my tunes there's very few studios around, like the old ones, you know, where you got the big room and all that kind of stuff. But there was one uh, rock and roll kind of studio that this engineer that I used would, was able to record there. So I re- recorded there, and these people that set this up, it's basically a rock and roll studio, you know, but the room is there. And these people that said, we recorded four tunes in two and a half hours. They couldn't believe it. Right. So, oh, rock and roll groups, they spend five, four hours on one tune. You know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, it's just... It's like that. You right. Know, just do it. But it's also like, I mean, the music just sounds fresh, you know? Well, that's it. It's the freshness, absolutely. You're right about that. You, uh... Can you talk about, he, he left us this year, I believe, but uh, your relationship or how you uh, how you feel about Tony Bennett? Well, I was a personal friend with Tony. I played with him for um, 15 years when he came into Chicago. I was his principal, his lead trumpet player. And I knew Tony very well. In fact, uh, we used to do a little weed together. <laughs> oh, my. Wait, you used to puff a little bit? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. my God. I am loving this. This You just made my day, dude. It was not having the... Well, br- I, you made my day, man. Tony was like that. You know, he'd say, Bobby, you're going to call me up and say, anything you can bring? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be right there. I'll be there, Tony. <laughs> uh, but he was, he was Tony Bennett, and I played for Peggy Lee all the time. Sure. She was a personal friend as well. Wow. And, you know, played, I was musical conductor for a couple of her shows, musical director. And, you know, knowing these wonderful people and being friends, there's nothing like it, you know? Knowing that they're just real, honest to God, great people. Right, right, exactly. With nope. all this talent. <laughs> right, you know, all and all the the you know still never losing that that integrity of soul even if you become quote unquote famous or super successful just really 
good people. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I got a bunch of stories. Some of them I can't tell. Well, no, tell me, tell me. I mean, as Tony was incredibly supportive. I just found this Carnegie Hall concert. You know, he had Candido on there, and you know, he's promoting Afro-Cuban music. I mean, him and Sinatra were just like the biggest jazz heads, man. Well, yeah. <laughs> Tony was all about that, you know. <laughs> I played one one show with Tony Bennett and Lena Horne. It was just an incredible show. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Where was that? Where was that the... Um, it was at the Opera House in yeah. Chicago. I think maybe it was at Symphony Center. I, I'm not sure. Um, I think it was the Opera House, yeah. Well, no, I was going to say, I, I, my dear friend, I'm so excited to ask you about him. I've met him in person in Marin County. I've done a bunch of interviews with him as Harold Jones. Oh, yeah. You really? I knew Harold, yeah. Did you know Harold before he got, before, when he was, before he got with Tony, like when he was in Chicago or when he was with Basie? Well, he was with Count Basie's band, too. Right, right, I know. I knew him before Count Basie's band. I didn't see him that much afterwards, but... Wait uh, a minute, you knew him before... I need you to talk about this. How, you'd run into him, like, playing... Where would you... How would you know him? Um... Hmm, let's see. Uh, I'm not quite sure I remember that. Because <laughs> he was playing... I've interviewed him a bunch, and he... He was he was playing sock. He was playing high school dances with Sun Ra. And this is way before the orchestra, but just Sun Ra. They were playing like they were playing you know straight ahead jazz tunes, and he that was in the late fifties. That was before you even got to Chicago. Wow! Yeah. Well, yeah. Some of those guys I didn't know you know till after I was here. Did you? Did you? Uh, the other cat I wanted to ask you about. Uh, was you know I know Mancini spent a lot of time in Chicago. Well, I played for him twice. <laughs> well, the first time I was a trumpet soloist, and the second time I was just in the band. But um, yeah, he was um, he was fun to work with, you know. Absolutely, but, yeah. You were. Uh, um, <coughs> I was going to say, with with. Um, did you work with guys like? Uh, uh, Richard Evans. Yeah, I played uh, several sessions with Richard Evans when he was producing. I forget he, who he was producing, but, um, you know, yeah, he was... Um, Art Hoyle and I used to play on uh, Richard Evans sessions. Do you know who Art, Art Hoyle is, don't you? No. You don't? I don't. I was one of the great jazz players in Chicago. Was play, he played with Sun Ra? Is he still with us? No, no, I, I passed. He played. He played with Sun Ra. Yeah, but I mean, like in the or orchestra, or like when he was still playing mainstream music. I think. You know, I think it was before that, before the orchestra. Yeah. Did you? Um, a couple things. Have you had a chance to? I'm very close with a great drummer down in New Orleans, Johnny Vidakovich, and uh, he played a lot with Al Hurt, and, and they'd play at, at Tulane Stadium at halftime for the Saints games, uh, which was classic. But um, did you get a chance? I know you recorded with Al. 
did you have you had a chance to go to New Orleans and play? And and what do you what do you think of that city? Well, you know what, I was only there once, and, and um, too busy. <laughs> I was there to see a trumpet player named um, Emery Thompson, who had moved down there, and you know we had we had fun. He was playing at the Blue Room of the Roosevelt Hotel there, you know. And there was a pre-Mardi Gras, and I had fun with him. We we went to and sat in at a black funeral. He says, yeah, I'll take you to a black funeral. We'll, we'll join. That is Bye. awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. Awesome. He says, he, I said, I don't have a horn. He says, I'll bring one for you. He says, when he come by, we'll, we'll join him and then drop out, you know. That <laughs> says, is awesome. I have that experience, so that was cool. Dude, oh, that's, that, you had, that's all you needed to have, you know? Well, that was it, you know. And the other kind of joy I had was seeing a guy with a card table with all these, um, these, um, Brandy snifter glasses, sure, of, of different sizes, some big, and he would wet them and, and make them sound, make them spin and make a sound. And he had a whole thing up there, and he played like uh, that. Uh, he played that on his class, <laughs> you know, breaker, uh, like eyeglass kind of thing. No, 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 like brandy snifter glass. Oh, oh, totally. He would he would actually play like, 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 like mallets on it or like little sticks. No, 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 with his fingers around the rim. He'd wet his fingers, and if you put your finger around the rim of those, it makes a sound. It makes a big sound. Whoa. You know the way you get a sound out of spinning your finger in a glass. Sure. That that's what it was. And this guy, I'm telling you, it was, <laughs> I didn't never heard anything like that. <clears throat> but I was kind of disappointed with the music that I heard. Preservation Hall, you know, they played 20 minutes of tired music and then kicked everybody out, you know, next group. Oh, my in. God, dude. I hate that shit. It a lot of money so just 20 minutes. And these guys... Look bored to death. You know? <laughs> I, oh Jesus! You know. Come on, man. <laughs> so. But I got one great story. Please, man, the, hit me. Oh, hit me. Oh, the Preservation Hall band was in Chicago one time at Ravinia, and that and during that time though they recorded a commercial for one of the producers. So a couple weeks later, this producer calls me. He says, "We need to replace him." Bars with a trumpet player. He, he says, he said, he's an 80-year-old black trumpet player from New Orleans. Can you do that? I said, well, I'll, I'll come there. I, I, I probably can. I says, you play for me, and I'll see what I can imitate, you know. So I did that. This is the Preservation Hall trumpet player, you know. He said, play it for me. Let me see what, I, you know, see what he was doing and stuff. And I said, okay, let me do it. After I finished, I said, how did you do that? You sound just like him. I said, well, that's why I do studio work, because I can do that. Wow. I had a play like Al Hurt one time on, a, on one of those kind of things, you know, a viewing commercial. <laughs> wow. 
it's like all that you know that we were talking about before but uh, you know that kind of stuff tell me what you still have left to do what are you still learning about at this point musically or about life well um let me relate a, a thing that Dizzy Gillespie said. Sure. He said, this is about the trumpet. He says, someday you pick the horn up and put it to your chops, and it feels pretty good, and you win. He says, some days you put it up there, and nothing happens, you can't get anything done, and the horn wins. He says, go through life, you win, the horn wins, and in the end, you die, and the horn wins. <laughs> you are making my day so that's, man. What, that's what that damn trumpet is you know sometimes it it says hello and sometimes it says goodbye you know right ultimately it's going to have the final say but still but you know yeah. just enjoy the enjoyment i get out of just playing and picking that up the horn, you know, and the fugal horn, and I got a bunch of horns that play them all, you know. But that's what I like to do, and you know, uh, until I'm decomposing, <laughs> you can. Uh, I'll be playing my horn. Dude, you're going to be getting more wins, is what you're. Gonna, you're going to win over the horn a lot. Yeah, yeah. right. And there's still a lot to learn about that. That. Horn and music and everything else, you know. So you keep your mind open, you keep your brain um, fresh, and hopefully, and let it all sink in and have fun with it. Bobby Lewis, it was an absolute honor to connect with you, man. Uh, we definitely should do another interview down the road. Dave, um, I'd love to, man. You're great. It's wonderful talking with you about to, uh, you know that you have so much experience and history and all that stuff and shoot names at me. And, and <laughs> I know, I know. I think I got your brain going. <laughs> I love it. It's just wonderful. So, yeah, man. You know, keep on keeping on, my friend. And, um, you know, you're much appreciated, you know. Yeah, much love, Bobby. Thank you so much, brother. Back to you, Jake, and thanks for uh, this interview. Always, brother. Talk to you soon, man. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.